AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk. Comedians or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula. Berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite, with just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat, and support your weight management journey. Right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com, the lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money, but are your bills accurate? Well, it's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help you. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. So to save, visit HealthLock.com today. That's HealthLock.com today. Family Secrets is a production of iHeartRadio. By the time I was 10, street name signs had disintegrated into a blurry haze of green and white unless I was almost directly under them. I couldn't read colored words against the background unless there was enough of a contrast, and I couldn't read the aisle signs in the supermarket unless I squinted. Faces started to look the same to me, their features indistinguishable. I became anxious over my inability to recognize people as they approached, but I learned to use the idiosyncrasies of their gait and the particular way their bodies occupied space to identify them. And when that failed, I learned to look down at my feet while I walked to avoid accidental eye contact with anyone I couldn't recognize. Eventually, as my sight worsened and my squinting powers failed me, I developed a new technique. I would push the bottom lid of my eye inward and upward to narrow my field of vision until my eyes were almost closed, but not quite. This technique was more effective than a regular squint, and for a time, it worked. It was almost like a super squint. Walking alongside my mother and father one day in a Rite Aid pharmacy, I decided to try out my new technique in order to read the signs hanging above the aisles. My father had walked ahead of us. I held on to my mother with my left hand and pushed in the bottom lids of my eyes with my right, using my thumb and index finger. Suddenly, my mother's face was close to mine, her eyes wide as she bent down toward me. Gilly, what are you doing? She whispered harshly. Oh, this, I said. Nothing, just trying to read the signs. Don't let your father see you, she said. She pulled my hand down and forced it against my side. Stop pretending you can't see or you really will be blind. You know how your father feels about that. She glanced nervously toward my father. I'm not pretending, mom. I really can't. What is it? My father had started to walk back toward us. Nothing, my mother said quickly, straining up. 
There was something in her eye and we were trying to get it out. It's out now though. She squeezed my hand, almost crushing it. That's Lee Tran reading from her debut memoir, House of Sticks. Lee's is a story of loyalty, family, tenacity, and a secret she kept for a long time, so long it very nearly destroyed her. I'm Danny Shapiro, and this is Family Secrets. The secrets that are kept from us, the secrets we keep from others, and the secrets we keep from ourselves. What was the landscape of your childhood before you were three years old and then after? I was born in a small town in southern Vietnam in 1993. My family and I were able to immigrate to the United States through a program known as the Humanitarian Operation, which helped resettle former prisoners of war here in the States. And my father was a former POW. He spent almost 10 years in the re-education camps of Vietnam. And, you know, that was our lucky ticket out. And so we, we came to Ridgewood, Queens in 1993 in the middle of a blizzard, no less. So it was, needless to say, very cold for us uh, Vietnamese people. And, you know, it was, it was really difficult to navigate this foreign country. None of us spoke the language. I you know I was only three and I had three older brothers at the time, um, the oldest of which was just nine years old. And so finding a way to make ends meet, it was really difficult, but a family friend introduced us to this sort of home sweatshop labor. And so that's what we did. And it required us to borrow a sewing machine from uh, the company. And then we would sort of work to pay it off over the years. There would be a, a weekly quota, of, you know, maybe 1,000 ties or 2,000 cummerbunds. And we had to deliver it every week. So that was my first job um, as a, a toddler, which was to, to help my family make these ties and cummerbunds. And I separated the materials, gave them to my father, who would then sew the, the ties. And then my brothers and I would take it out from underneath the sewing machine and turn it inside out. And it was just this little family assembly line. Yeah, we, we did that all the way up until uh, I was 12. Describe your mother for me. Well, my mother, she's a very fiercely independent woman. Um, She was sort of the main reason that we were able to keep it together as a family. My father was incredible as well. You know, he tried really hard to just get us through the system. We would spend a lot of days at the International Rescue Committee, and he would take down notes, you know, exactly where he needed to take us to get vaccinations, for instance, to get to go to the food stamp office and to get my brothers enrolled in school. Uh, Whereas my mother, you know, she was more responsible for just calculating how much money we would need to put food on the table while also keeping us warm. And she was also part of the reason uh, my father wasn't so abusive all the time. You know, she would find ways to calm him down whenever she she saw his temper get out of hand uh, because of the the PTSD that he suffered from. So during that time, she would always ask us to learn Vietnamese. She would sit us down, tell us, okay, notebook's out. We're going to learn Vietnamese. We're going to speak only Vietnamese in the house because I don't want you to forget your roots. I don't want you to forget where you came from. So I was really diligent. I love language. And I think she's the reason I love language. Whereas, you know, oftentimes my brothers would get to go out and play in the park and say, oh, yeah, we'll learn later, mom. And she would say, okay, Lee, you stay. And I would ask, well, why, why do they get to go off and play? But now I don't regret that I stayed because I, I can 
speak, read, and write in Vietnamese. And it was during that time that I heard a lot of stories from her. She told me all of these stories about herself in Vietnam, about the time that she ran away from a matchmaker because she did not want to get married, um, and about how she took on her family's business in Vietnam and was a merchant, and she would ride her motorcycle to all these different shops and deliver goods, and everyone loved her. And it was just a really great time for me to spend with my mother. But at the same time, she was also really strict in terms of teaching me how to be a good housewife, which was so sort of antithetical to who she is on the inside. But I think after marrying my father and seeing how difficult it was to be a wife, and especially in my father's household, where he has five older sisters who are very abusive towards my mother because they felt like she wasn't a good enough housewife. She didn't know how to cook when she first married into the family. And so they would keep her up at night. They would throw hot water on her just to sort of show her, okay, you are now our servant, basically. And she didn't want that sort of fate for me. So she said, okay, you need to learn how to cook. You need to learn how to sweep, how to fold clothing properly. And, you know, you need to learn all of these things so that you can have a better future, not like the future that I had. Buddhism is central to the Tran household. One of the first things Lee's father does when they settle into their new home in Queens is to build an altar high up on their living room wall, one which will eventually cover the entire wall from end to end to honor the Buddha and the Bodhisattvas. There is a framed picture of the great Shakyamuni Buddha, the Awakened One, as well as a picture of Kwan Ambotat, the goddess of compassion. Call out her name three times when you need help, Lee's father tells her. She has a thousand arms. Her arms will reach you. So I was struck with the significance of the altar in your family's home and the deities and the saints and the role that they play in daily life and in the idea of protection and the idea of fulfillment uh, of hopes and desires and how deeply that was internalized in you as a child. Sure, yeah. I think it's different for my father versus its meaning for my mother. But I know for my father, when he was in the re-education camps, or even just before that, serving as a soldier in the war and not knowing, you know, if he was going to live one day or, or die the next, having a faith to hold on to and just believing that there is someone, some bodhisattva or Buddha out there watching over him was, was so powerful. At some point in the re-education camp, he sees that one of his fellow prisoners had, had caught a, a turtle in his trap. And coming from a Buddhist background, he felt sorry for the turtle and couldn't bear to see his, his fellow prisoner kill it. And he, so he asked if he could trade scallions for the turtle. And the prisoner said, sure, you know, I don't know what to do with this thing anyway. And my father put a splint on the turtle's broken leg and, and set it free. And this was a story that he would tell us when we were younger. He'd say, when I released this turtle, it, it took a few steps and turned around to look at me. And then it nodded at me three times. And three days later, I was released from prison. And just this story is something that has stuck with me throughout my entire life. And it, it's such a, a symbol of the faith that my father had in Buddhism and these spirits that protected him because he, he thought this turtle was some sort of incarnation of the goddess of compassion. And the, the turtle was sent to save him. You know, in those conditions, I wouldn't blame a person to, to hold on to, to something like that. And for my mother, you know, when we were in Vietnam, actually all of us, at one point or another, we would get severely ill, especially coming from such a rural place in Vietnam where there were shamans and witch doctors and not really medicine that was too modern at the time. And so she would often pray, but the power of prayer also gave her the strength to 
take her children from place to place and, and just pray that, uh, you know, some miracle would arrive. And oftentimes a miracle did somehow arrive and we all endured through our illnesses and survived. Lee's father was one of almost two and a half million South Vietnamese soldiers who were captured and then forced into backbreaking and often dangerous labor, sweeping minefields, digging wells and trains, cutting down trees. He served a 10-year sentence. He rarely spoke of his time in the camps, with the exception of the story of the turtle. Could you talk a little bit more about your father's, both his temper and his strictness? It was difficult for me. I remember one time I was going home from somewhere and I was walking with my father and he went into the store and bought me a popsicle, which was such a surprise uh, for me because at the time we were so poor that asking for treats, asking for snacks was most of the time just out of the question. And the fact that he just went to the store and bought me a popsicle, I was so, so happy and excited and I was skipping. Um, and I looked up at my father. I remember a moment of such deep love for this man who gave me this popsicle. And he, I remember him looking at me and considering me and then just out of nowhere smacking me. He says, don't look at me like that. And I was so shocked. I didn't, I didn't know what had happened. My popsicle fell out of my hand. And that moment was not a rare one. And it wasn't just me, you know, my, my three older brothers. We also sort of suffered through these tempests of my father's. Yeah, it, it was really, it was tough. It was tough to, to navigate such a difficult relationship. While at the same time, loving him and fearing him, you know, that it was difficult to reconcile those two emotions. And there, it seems like there was also an understanding that he had really been through something and that the 10 years that he spent as a POW were at the root cause of his rage and his tyrannical behavior, that there was a reason for this that was embedded into, like, the family culture as well. Yeah, I think this is something that would be uncovered as time went on, you know, because when I was a child, I didn't, I sort of just accepted it. I accepted his outbursts. But as I grew older, I began to question it. And I remember an episode in which he was yelling at my mother. And I thought, why, why is he doing that? And at the time, I was split between my loyalty towards my father versus my loyalty towards my mother. And that's when I started to think, that's not okay. You know, he can't treat my mother that way. And out of that questioning, I started to think about his past which he, he doesn't really talk about much. You know, I would only see it through snippets of conversation or once in a while when he was in the mood, he would just offer up like a glimpse of what his past was like. Or other times, whenever he would beat us, uh, my mother would say, you know, stop that crying. Don't be mad. One day you'll understand. Sometimes she would explain a little bit, but n nothing too in-depth perhaps because she didn't think that we would be able to understand at such young ages. But definitely when I got older, I wasn't quite able to forgive him yet. But understanding where he was coming from, that he was this prisoner of war and that re-education camps really dealt a blow to his psyche and just traumatized him in such a horrendous way that, you know, he still to this day has nightmares about it. And those nightmares were a part of your childhood, hearing him, you know, having nightmares, right? Yes, absolutely. I would, you know, wake up in the middle of the night, you know, this man is, is screaming and my mother is struggling to, to hold him down and to, to wake him up. Sometimes he would walk in his sleep and run from one corner of the house to the other, telling her, we have to go, you have to grab the children, they're after us. And she's saying, what, what are you talking about? Calm down, you know? And so... Yeah, she, she really had to be strong for us as well uh, in terms of getting him to calm down while trying to shield us from what he was going through. And that was that was hard. You know, as children, we, we didn't let on that we knew what was going on, probably because we were really just afraid to see 
our father like this, but we knew that come morning time, everything would be okay again. We'll be right back. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula. Berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite, with just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat, and support your weight management journey. Right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com, the lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring with access to over 6 million active hourly workers. Snag a job is the all in one solution for hiring high quality employees who can cover all your needs on demand, tempt to hire part time or full time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store, clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah. Snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash iHeart. That's LifeLock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. When Lee starts school, she has very little grasp of the English language. Unlike her brothers, who went straight into the school system when they emigrated, she's been home with her mother for a couple of years, speaking Vietnamese and listening to her mother's stories. So Lee is placed at first in English as a second language. She's socially awkward, kind of doesn't know how to be. She hasn't learned any social cues. So she's a bit of a loner and academically challenged, But it isn't until the third grade that a teacher notices that Lee is having trouble seeing the blackboard. And she sends Lee home with a note to her parents, letting them know that Lee needs eyeglasses. Yeah, in the third grade, you know, they had like kids line up to take 
the Snellen eye chart, which, you know, everyone knows is the one with the big E on it. And I got a letter sent home that said, hey, your daughter has astigmatism and she might need glasses. And my father just completely freaked out. I had no idea what was happening. He took the note, ripped it up and told me never to speak of it again. And he was cursing at me and I didn't want to do the wrong thing. To me, it was a homework assignment that I had to do, you know, so I was like, oh my goodness, but I need this signed. I don't know what to do. So I tried again to ask him and he smacked me and was just so furious. He he told me that the government was after me and how could I be so stupid as to give in to, to the government wanting to take away my eyesight because he thought that eyeglasses were a government conspiracy and if I ever wore glasses, my sight would worsen and it was just a ploy by the government to get me to be dependent on eyeglasses. Um, so the more my eyesight would worsen, I would have to buy more glasses. And you know, he explained this whole thing. And so, and that was the end of the discussion. And I thought, okay, I guess he has a point. <laughs> you know, I was eight. So you proceed through elementary school and middle school and you need glasses and you don't have them. And What's that like? Like, what was your experience actually of the world around you that you could see or that you couldn't see? What was it actually like sort of being you during those years? It's so funny because I don't even remember the moment in which I realized that I needed glasses. It was such a gradual process. Even during the Snellen chart, I thought, oh, I can't see those letters, but they're so far away. Why would I need to see those letters, you know? Mm -hmm. I, I just remember... Yeah, around the fifth grade is when I w- I'm walking in the street and I realized I can't even see the street signs anymore. And it felt like just my perception of the world was just getting narrower and narrower. And it felt like I was looking at the world through this foggy window. But no matter how much I tried to rub this window, it just wouldn't unfog. And so it was hard. But... I think my father was very successful in sort of convincing me that, no, this is how everybody's eyes work and, you know, it'll be fine. You also had an older brother who had eyesight that wasn't excellent and that had managed to excel academically even with his poor eyesight and even with no glasses. So you should be able to do the same thing. Right, exactly. Yeah, my brother Long, I think he also had the same note sent home in the third grade. I don't know if he went through the same exact experience in terms of my father ripping up his note, but I don't even know if he even gave the note to my father, but he was able to do well in school because his prescription just wasn't as high as mine. And so even if he sat at the back of the classroom, he was still able to see the board, whereas my vision just deteriorated as the years went on. And the more that I wasn't able to see, the more headaches I got and the more stressed I became. And so for my father, it was so clear. It was just, well, you're a girl. That's why you're not doing well in school. It was as easy as that for him. It was just a simple matter of uh, gender differences in terms of intelligence. He felt like well, boys are just smarter than girls. And then that's why my brother was able to do well. And he said, you know, it's okay. You don't have to do well if you you don't get it. And then he just chalked it up to a lack of intelligence as opposed to just seeing that his daughter needed glasses dearly. When Lee's in the eighth grade, she takes the standardized test that will determine where she'll go to high school. The best public high school in New York City is the Bronx High School of Science. This is one of those tests where you fill in little bubbles, but Lee runs out of time. Her inability to see has greatly affected her ability to master advanced math, so she quickly and randomly fills in the remaining bubbles. Just to be clear, this is a test that many more privileged students spend years preparing for with hired tutors and special courses. But perhaps the goddess of compassion is looking out for her. Lee is admitted to Bronx science. At this point, her parents' sweatshop labor has come to an end, and Lee's mother takes a course to learn how to be a manicurist. She teaches Lee as well, 
the two of them practicing on orange peels and fake nails. Her mom works at a series of nail salons until she ends up in Brownsville, Brooklyn, at a salon she eventually buys. Lee's parents' dream of being business owners in America comes true. So now Lee's in ninth grade, attending Bronx Science and working part-time in her parents' salon, where she often witnesses clients being rude, berating her mother for her limited English. Lee swallows her anger and keeps her head down. At school, she keeps her head down for a different reason. She doesn't want anyone to notice how much she's struggling. It's a lot to endure. So now you're at um, Bronx High School of Science, and, you know, one of the things that strikes me in in your story, Lee, is, like, the, the appearance from time to time at really important times of angels, you know, of of just people who, I mean, it's the thing I found most moving, really, about your story, is that there were these people, these adults, who responded to you, who saw something in you, who went above and beyond, and there was this kind of ongoing, compassionate intervention, even as there was so much else that was so incredibly difficult. And one of the First of those was this very kind professor when you're in ninth grade who offers to get you a pair of glasses. Yeah, yeah. This is in the ninth grade, and I hadn't had the courage to really tell anybody yet that I was really suffering and, and couldn't see. I just kept asking teachers if I could sit in the front of the classroom. I did tell them that I couldn't see, but that I was waiting for Medicaid. You know, I was waiting to get a pair of glasses. And obviously that was a lie because I knew that I could have gotten glasses at any point, except that my parents would disown me. And, you know, I I told one student who had attended the middle school with me, and he also got into broad science. And when he heard, he was just so shocked. And he said, this, that's ridiculous, Lee. You need to tell somebody. And I said, no, 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 please don't tell anybody. I'm going to get in trouble. Thank goodness he did not listen to me and he told an eighth grade teacher and this eighth grade teacher was actually not even a teacher of mine. He just headed the the chess club, which I was a part of in the eighth grade. And so, you know, one day I get a message, an email from Mr. Dechonkit, who's a teacher, and he says, Hi Lee, I heard from Michael that you're you're not doing so well and I would really love to help you out. And so we meet in my neighborhood in Ridgewood and he says you know I I need you to be able to see you really need to be able to see to do well in school to have a good and bright future and then he says this will be our little secret don't tell anybody don't tell your parents and and just keep these glasses in your locker at school what's the worst that can happen nothing you know as long as you don't tell anybody you'll be able to see and you'll be able to get better grades and it was just such an incredibly compassionate and kind gesture. And also, you know, putting on glasses for the first time and being able to see and realizing, oh my goodness, this is how I'm supposed to see the world? Is this how everybody sees the world? You know, I looked at a tree right outside of the glasses place and saw the veins on the leaves. And it was so shocking, but at the same time, as much as I wanted to be able to see, uh, the guilt was so overwhelming, too, because I thought, oh, my God, I betrayed my parents. They're going to disown me. They're going to find out somehow, even if they don't find out, I'm doing something wrong. I'm doing something that they don't want me to do. So I, I took off the glasses right away. You know, I, I tried to use the glasses as little as possible during school. And before I knew it, I started not to be able to see again. You know, the the board started becoming blurry and I just didn't understand what was going on. I thought, oh, oh my God, wait, why is my vision plummeting again? And then I sort of recalled my father's words uh, saying that the government was after me and that glasses are designed to keep you dependent on them. And the second you put them on, your eyesight is going to deteriorate. And that's, that's exactly what was happening to me. And so... I confided in a friend, and she said, "Oh yeah, that's normal. That's just that's just your body growing. And, you know, everybody's eyes change, um, especially those with myopia." Uh, she said, you know, "One year, I had to get my glasses changed three times." 
So, yeah, that's all you need. You just need to get a different pair of glasses with a higher prescription. Not so simple. Right, exactly. Yeah. You know, to her, it was a very simple matter. But to me, I thought, oh, God, um, should I reach out to Mr. Chonkhead? And then again, that sense of guilt, that sense of having let somebody down. Not only did I let my parents down, but I let Mr. Chonkhead down because all he wanted was for me to do well in school. And now my vision was plummeting again and my grades were also plummeting. And it just seemed to be an endless cycle. And I thought, oh, God, maybe I'm cursed, which is interesting. It sort of goes back to this theme of myth-making or or meaning-making. You know, every time something good happens, I think, oh, it's an angel. Every time something bad happens, I think, oh, I'm just cursed. Or in Buddhism, there's this idea of reincarnation. And if you had done something bad in a past life, then you would be reincarnated in this life with a lot of trouble or you would have to suffer more in this life. And so I thought, oh, God, I must have been a horrible, horrible person in a past life. I never reached out to Mr. Chunkett again. I was so ashamed of myself. And little by little, my grades just, I, I went from being an A student to just barely a C student. Any number of stories we've told on this podcast have had to do with the failure of adults to intervene when a child is at risk, whether parents or teachers or heads of institutions. But then there are angels Adults who see what needs doing, and by becoming involved, can change the trajectory of a life. Mrs. Walsh, Lee's high school guidance counselor, is one of those grown-ups. At one point, she even calls child services to intervene, a situation Lee immediately diffuses by downplaying the severity of her situation. She doesn't want anyone going after her parents. But throughout, Mrs. Walsh is an unwavering source of support and makes sure Lee's teachers know why she's having a hard time in the classroom. So during this time, it's my senior year, and I I have to apply for colleges. And Mrs. Walsh, she just went above and beyond. She spoke to all of my teachers and, and told them what I had been going through. And my teachers were really kind and understanding. And so they didn't give me such terrible grades. They were really generous with their grading. And she wrote a really extensive letter of recommendation. She asked other teachers to write letters of recommendation. And I think my grades from my freshman year, when I sort of had the glasses and when I was trying really, really hard and I wasn't sort of bogged down with depression, I was able to get by. Freshman year was able to balance out my grades towards the end of my four years. And That's how I was able to get into the Macaulay Honors College at Hunter. We'll be back in a moment with more Family Secrets. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula, berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite, with just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat, and support your weight management journey. Right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com, the lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, 
Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Things finally seem to be going right for Lee. She's been accepted in this big deal, prestigious honors college. She's regularly seeing a therapist a silver lining from the incident with child services. And her brother offers her a life-changing present. Before you begin the Macaulay Honors Program at Hunter, your oldest brother, who had just finished college himself, gives you a gift. Yes. It was a graduation gift. And I had asked my parents to go to my graduation, and they said, oh, we can't miss work. Which I understood at the time. And so my oldest brother and my youngest older brother, Tin and Long, they both agreed to go. And afterwards, my oldest brother said, hey, I want to take you somewhere. It's a surprise. And when he he takes me to a contact shop or a lenses shop that sells contacts, and he buys me a box of contacts so that my parents would never be able to find out. It was a life changer. You know, this is a way for me to see always and without my parents knowing that being helped in some way or or without my father thinking that the government was after me. So I start the Macaulay Honors College fully armed. (laughs) I was finally able to see and it's a fresh start. I can leave the past behind. I'm seeing the psychiatrist and I, I just feel like the tides are finally turning. Maybe I'm not cursed after all, you know, this is, I'm, I'm going to make it work. You're living away from your parents for the first time. You have a full scholarship. You have a stipend. You have a dorm room. You have a laptop. You're all set. Macaulay is one of these, it's such an amazing program in that if you're accepted, then it's a full ride and you get all of these perks. It really was a chance for me to start over and to see the world too. At that point, I'd never even been to a diner. I'd never really been to restaurants because my my family was too poor. And even going over to other people's houses was such a rare occurrence for me that now that I was living in a dorm room and with other students and seeing like, oh, this is what life is supposed to be like. This is how other people live. And it was really such a a great experience for me. It's such an eye-opener, so to speak. (laughs) No pun intended. You know, I was very ambitious. I took six courses my first semester. And more than anything else, I wanted to prove to myself and to my parents that I did belong in such a prestigious program. My brother Long was also accepted two years before, and he was doing very well. So I also wanted to prove to him, like, hey, your little sister can can make it here, too. And so for the first semester, I had an A average. I had a 4.0, which was incredible. I I felt like, okay, I did it, finally. But that all sort of backfired on me somehow. And, you know, the mind works in such, such funny ways. And after receiving that A, that 4.0, I thought, okay, I've set this bar. I cannot go below this bar at any cost. So for my second semester, again, six courses and all really difficult. Some were even senior level courses that I had applied to. 
At that point, I just thought I was really hard on myself. I was really ambitious and I, I joined several different clubs. I had two different jobs. I just wanted to prove it, prove to everyone that I, I could do it. And I just shut down at some point. I think the first difficult assignment I had or the first even A minus I received, I, I couldn't handle it. And so I stopped going to classes. I started getting nightmares about, you know, betraying my parents or like my, my eyesight worsening or being blind even. Lee starts buckling under the pressure to do all the things. She feels she has to be perfect. Otherwise, she's a complete failure. Faced with the impossibility of perfection, she finds herself falling apart. I would stop eating. I stopped waking up on time. I just stopped showing up to classes. During that time, you know, friends started to get concerned. I told Dr. Hayes, my psychiatrist at the time, I said, I think I'm not doing well. And he said, well, you know, it's okay. You're, you're going to get through this. You've got a 4.0 from the first semester. We can just get you a medical withdrawal. It seems like you're really depressed and you've been depressed all this time. It's, it's okay. You've got high-functioning depression, but you're going to get through this. And there are ways to, to get around the grade situation. When he spoke to me, I, I assumed that he would just write me a medical note to get me excused my classes because it, that's sort of what he told me. But that's not what happens. What happens next is something that Lee or anyone who knew Lee could never have seen coming. A few days later, I received a knock on my door in the dorms, and it, you know, it was two security guards with the director of the dorms behind them, and they said, "Are you Lee Tran?" And I said, "Yes." And they said, "We have reason to believe that you are a danger to yourself." So. Grab all your things. Don't take too much because it'll all be confiscated anyway, but just grab essentials and we're going to escort you to the Mount Sinai psych ward. And I was so shocked, totally taken off guard, but I just followed them. And I was in that psych ward for about, I think, a week or two weeks and just feeling so incredibly alone. The doctors and the nurses and therapists, they all kept asking me, are you suicidal? How are you feeling? And I don't know. I didn't understand why they were asking me that because the thought never really crossed my mind up until that point, up until they sort of kept asking me. Weren't they also telling you that they were trying to reach Dr. Hayes and that they couldn't reach him? Yeah, that's exactly what happened. Even on the first day that I was there, they said, hey, we don't quite know why you're here. And I, you know, I told them I was very depressed and that I wasn't doing well in my classes. And they said, yeah, that's not... Okay, That's I guess that's a good reason, but we, we're going to have to talk to your psychiatrist. But there's a problem. We can't really reach him. So unless we're able to reach him, that's when we can provide a proper diagnosis and proper treatment plan and then send you on your way. And so day after day, they, they would come into my, my room and say, we can't reach him. We can't. We don't know where he is. So you're just going to have to be patient. And I think at that point, I felt really abandoned. I, I didn't understand what was going on. And I, I didn't feel like there was anybody I could really reach out to. My friends all saw me getting escorted out of the dorms. And that was such a humiliating experience. I couldn't tell my parents. My parents didn't know where I was. I couldn't tell my brothers. And at that point, I had such little contact with my family that even if I had disappeared for two weeks, they didn't matter. They never found out. I can't underscore enough what a profound failure this was on the part of the psychiatrist, Dr. Hayes. It turns out that Dr. Hayes wasn't reachable because Dr. Hayes had gone on vacation. He was very green as a psychiatrist. Lee was his first patient. And he thought, that a good place to deposit her while he enjoyed his time off would be involuntary committal to a psych ward. I mean, that's just a really extraordinary betrayal. Yes. We had discussed it in his office that he would find a way to get me this medical withdrawal, but I had no idea that it would you know, result in a two-week stay at the psych ward. 
and to, to not even have contact with him to figure out, okay, what do I do while I'm here? What do I tell the psychiatrist in charge? I just felt so alone. I felt like he really did betray me. And then even after I was released, I made one more appointment to see him. And, you know, he acknowledged that maybe he shouldn't have gone on vacation. He said I was allowed to be mad at him. (laughs) Yeah, I I thought, mad? I mean, is that even enough? Is that word even enough to describe what I'm feeling right now? And I think maybe that's when, you know, the wall that I had built up over the years to separate myself from my emotions, like the negative emotions mostly, but even the positive emotions. I think that's when that wall began to to crumble because I felt so incredibly upset and I just never went back to see him. And he never inquired after me after that either. You know, it's interesting what you're saying too about feeling some of those more difficult feelings and it strikes me that you grew up never being allowed to be angry. Like, there was no room for being mad. There was no room for being angry. That was all your father's territory. And as a girl, there was no room. You know, I remember every time I, I would get angry, my mother would say, look at yourself, look at that face. Is that is that your face, is this angry face? And, you know, I couldn't even see my face at the time, but I, I didn't want to look in, in such a way that wasn't me. And so... I just would, would fix my face very quickly. And yeah, it, anger is just something that I very seriously allowed myself to feel. And if I did feel it, I didn't have a word for it. And during my sessions with Dr. Hayes, it was very clear that I was unable to put a name to what I was feeling oftentimes. And so, you know, we had a lot of sessions in which there was complete silence. Because he would say, tell me about your feelings. After I, I had told him everything, which I thought were my feelings, but it was just facts. I would just tell him facts about my life. And he said, well, how do you feel about it? And I just, my mind drew a blank. And I think now the word angry is certainly one of the words that I would have attributed to what I was feeling during those sessions. And was it during that time that you went back home and ended up having an argument with your parents and actually did cross over into anger, exasperation, and you take out your contacts and show them, and there's a shift. Yeah, well, at this point, you know, it's my second year at the Honors College, and I'm just so depressed. After this this episode in the psych ward, I I really just descend into a spiral of darkness that I it was impossible for me to get out of. So, you know, my medical withdrawal from the previous semester wasn't enough for me to to do well in my second year at Hunter. And so, part of the honors program is that you had to maintain a 3.5 GPA in order to stay and. I was not able to maintain a GPA, and so I was dismissed from the Honors College and matriculated to Hunter College, and I lost all of my privileges, all all those perks, the dorm room, the laptop, the tuition, I lost it all, and so I had to move out of the dorm. And this is when I realized that no matter how hard I try, I'm just, I'm not going to be able to escape my fate, which to me at the time was a fate of working in the nail salon with my mother. So I take all of my belongings home and my parents are there and they see my bags and there's sort of this this sense of, we told you so, you're a girl. The fact that you made it this far is already so shocking to us. My mother says, you know, when your father first arrived to America, his greatest wish for you all was to to get past high school and that's it and now you know your brothers are they're going to be done with college all of them soon and the fact that you at least had one or two years of college that's great you know but if you didn't do well then that was to be expected because you're a girl and I was livid I just at that point I thought you know I've lost everything 
I've lost any kind of sense of dignity. I've, I've lost all hope for a, a better future. And I thought, you know what? I'm just going to tell them. I'm just going to tell them I've been wearing contacts all this time because I thought, you know what? I think part of it, I, I wanted to hurt them. <laughs> um, that That's part of why I took out my contacts. I wanted to show them like, look, I betrayed you and I've been doing it all this time. And it's because you failed me. I really needed to see and you refused to understand that. And so here, look at this. What do you make of this now? And I think doing that was a breakthrough in my understanding of my father, especially because I expected for him to punish me. And maybe in a way I wanted him to punish me because I, I wanted to punish myself for being such a failure. But and he did, he smacked me once, but he kind of just looked afraid he, he looked like he was going to cry I remember thinking about that expression and thinking what was that why did he look like that I, I could have sworn he would beat me or, or disown me or something but he just sort of looked like a frail person who was scared and paranoid and the more that I really examined that expression the more I realized oh he really did love me and seeing the fact that I was relying on these contacts, even against his wishes, is, is when he realized that he had failed me as a father. And what was this failure Lee saw reflected in her father's eyes? It was a terror of imperfection, of vulnerability, in an unforgiving existence that allowed no room for it. If Lee has something wrong with her, if her eyes don't work, then perhaps she'll be left behind. This is when the potent cocktail of love and fear can turn into desperation and secret-keeping. When he realized, oh my goodness, my child actually really does need glasses. She really can't see like other people. That's when he realized, oh my goodness, I failed to keep my child healthy. I don't know, even to this day, if he realizes sort of the damage that he like the extent to which she had damaged me by not allowing me to to wear glasses. But then Lee's dad does something so surprising, so extraordinary, that no one could have seen it coming. Perhaps it's because time has gone by. Perhaps it's because she's on the road to academic and therefore future success. Perhaps this is one of those nods of the turtle. He asks Lee if she would like to have LASIK surgery. When he saw an ad for LASIK surgery, he started to really develop a a relationship with me. He started to ask me about my contacts. And this is obviously after I'm doing a little bit better in my life. But he says, do these contacts hurt you in any way? And I I say, no, you know, I've been wearing them all these years. It's, It's fine. And he's like, well, have you ever considered LASIK surgery? And I think I was just so taken aback. Like, why on earth would you even ask about LASIK surgery? Do you know how expensive that is? He just was so excited about it to the point where, you know, he he offered to pay for it. He said, your mother and I have some money saved that we can pay for this. And I think he he just wanted to make things right. I think he wanted to be my father, to, to fulfill that role as my father again. You're back in school, right? You're at Columbia at that point, And you're still an undergraduate? I'm still an undergraduate. Because after I had matriculated to Hunter College, there was a time when I just was so depressed that I dropped out of college altogether. And yeah, I, I spent two years just wandering the streets because I didn't want to tell my parents that I had dropped out of college altogether. I feared their viewpoint that it was expected for a girl to not do well. And then another angel, another mentor, goes above and beyond. Lee runs into a woman she knew in high school, a legal advocate who she hasn't seen in years. This woman pushes and probes, and Lee reluctantly ends up telling her everything that has happened. And she told me to apply to all of these different colleges, one of which happened to be the School of General Studies at Columbia University. And I laughed and I said, there's no way that I can make it there, but sure, I'll apply, I'll humor you. 
And yeah, somehow I was accepted to Columbia. And when I was accepted, the admissions officer who interviewed me told me that it was on the strength of my essay, my personal statement, that I was accepted. And that's when I thought, oh my gosh, my my story, I guess, was worth telling. Prayer, supplication, blessing, bargaining. As a child, while Lee knelt before an ever-expanding altar and recited Buddhist scripture she knew by heart, the air thick with incense, another practice began taking root, a practice all her own. She constructed a crystal dome of protection in her mind's eye, one that would keep her and everyone she loved safe from harm. You know, it occurs to me that you write about your crystal dome of protection that, as a child, you would have trouble falling asleep or be afraid of the dark and create very meticulously this crystal dome of protection over yourself and then over every single, you know, one of you in your family and then even then over the monsters that you were afraid were lurking in corners because you felt sorry for them because they needed protection too. I was just really struck by that and that being, you know, almost like a child's form of a kind of prayer or looking for protection or causality. Yeah, and it's funny because I do that to this day. (laughs) So it's, uh, it's something that hasn't left me, you know, and when someone in my family or a good friend of mine goes away on a trip, I'll just quickly create a dome around them so that they can arrive to their destination safely. I think it it comes from my wish for us to be protected and, and all the stories that my parents told me and a feeling of powerlessness. And for me, it was it was one way in which I could feel like I was in control of my situation, which at the time, you know, as a child, there are all these events happening around you. You're destitute, you know, your parents are struggling. And even though you can't quite grasp what those struggles are because you don't yet have the language or just wherewithal to understand, you feel it on a deep level. And I think for me, that came out during these sleepless nights. I felt that helplessness. And so I would just create these crystal domes in the hopes that we could all be protected, including the monsters. Family Secrets is a production of iHeartMedia. Dylan Fagan and Bethann Macaluso are the executive producers. Andrew Howard is our audio editor. If you have a secret you'd like to share, leave us a voicemail and your story could appear on an upcoming bonus episode. Our number is 1-888-SECRET-0. That's secret and then the number zero. You can also find us on Instagram at Danny Writer, Facebook at facebook.com slash familysecretspod, and Twitter at famsecretspod. And if you want to know about my family's secret that inspired this podcast— Check out my New York Times bestselling memoir, Inheritance. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from Brain MD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula. Berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite. With just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by Brain MD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat and support your weight management journey. And right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com. The lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. 
Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.